Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today we'll be delving into the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation, and I am glad that you could join us for this study today. I look forward to digging into the text and trying to grasp hold of what God has for us there. My goal with this entire podcast is to help us have a good understanding of Scripture, what it says and what it meant to those that first heard it, as well as what it should mean to us today. There is some wrestling with the text that has to take place, and that's a good thing. And I look forward to going on this journey along with you. I I welcome you as part of this, and I ask that you join me as we turn to the Lord in prayer preparing our hearts and our minds before we look at the text. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your word, for your word become flesh in Jesus Christ, that we might be redeemed, that our sins atoned for, that we would have life eternal and a right relationship with you. And Father, that as we study your word, Father, as we study your word, we see you. We hear your voice speaking to our hearts. And we are able to understand, to grasp hold of it, and have our faith strengthened, have our walk with you governed, and Father, to have our hearts inspired by the voice of your spirit. It is in Jesus' name that we pray, thanking you for this awesome gift and asking that you would continue to lead us forward. Amen. Here we go with chapter 19. And as you've heard me say before, if you've been with us in the podcast, if you're just joining us, back up. Start with chapter one. There is a lot of groundwork and a lot of background that has already been covered that you will need as a framework for understanding where we are now. So I encourage you to do that. Start at the beginning, not chapter 19. Uh, But we are glad to have you with us. If you're returning to the podcast, then hey, great to have you again. As we look at Revelation, we we see various ways it's laid out, the the overview of it. I don't want to rehash all of that, but we've seen some major motifs going here. We've looked at the seven seals, the seven trumpets, uh, the seven signs that kind of unpack the two witnesses in that episode during the seven trumpets. And then we see the seven bowls of wrath. All of this, each one kind of a, a judgment account of the rise of evil, of God's judgment of the world, of the redemption of the redeemed at that great and terrible day. Um, Great for those that know Christ, terrible for those apart from him. And we see that reflected in those different accounts. And then when we get to chapters 17 through, well, basically we get up to chapter 19, um, we see this account of the fall of Babylon. And that's it's pretty striking uh, because we've already covered a lot of that in those multiple tellings. But in this, it's focused on there will be a fall of Babylon, not specifically the city of Babylon, but Babylon as the 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 type, the the 
archetypal framework for every evil empire, evil being an empire that does not acknowledge God, uh, that places its its faith and its leaders in its military strength and its economic power and doesn't seek to follow God um, and place their faith and their strength, find their strength in him. So we, we see that there in 17 going up to 19. Once we get into 19, really 19 and 20, what we have is this interesting, again, kind of retelling or clarification with more detail. When I keep saying retelling, understand what I mean by that. Um, My understanding of the book of Revelation, it is retelling the same events from different perspectives. Think in terms of in the New Testament, we have four gospel accounts. There are similarities and there are some differences in those four gospels. I'm not saying any of them are wrong, but they are written from a different perspective and convey a different um, idea or flavor with them. Matthew writes his gospel very much from a Hebraic perspective. We see a heavy emphasis on fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and links to Hebraic tradition found in Matthew's gospel. Luke's gospel, Luke may very well have been a Gentile, and he traveled missionary journeys with Paul. Luke's gospel, written for a different purpose, still to proclaim the gospel to tell us, but he's writing to Theophilus answering questions and compiling facts that he has done research on. So for Luke's gospel and the book of Acts really goes with it. There's a different perspective, still God's truth, still the message of Christ, the life of Christ shown to us, but from a differing perspective. Same with Mark, same with John. But when we read all four of the Gospels, we get a more complete, a a more fleshed out, if you will, image of who Christ is. Now, why is that? Because we get to see him from multiple perspectives instead of just one flat perspective. So it enriches. Is that a word? Enriches? It makes richer. There we go. We'll go with that. Sounds better. Um, It makes richer the image that we get of Christ, our view of the Christ of Scripture. I think the same is true when we get to the book of Revelation. What God is revealing in these visions, we get a richer image of. We get a a more three-dimensional, a fuller image of when we gain it from more than a single perspective. And that's how I understand what's going on here, that you do have the seven seals, which are retelling the same thing, the seven trumpets, or seven trumpets are retelling the seven seals, the seven bowls of wrath echo the seven trumpets, echo the seven seals, that there's all of this kind of retelling from differing perspectives and using different imagery, but still covering some of the same territory. It gives us a fuller understanding of what's going on. Now, I know not everyone sees the book of Revelation that way. I'm saying that is how I have come at this point in my life and ministry to understand it and see it fitting together. And it works for me. I'm I'm at peace with that understanding. That may not be the understanding I have at the end of my days.
I don't know, but I don't think it's contrary to God's word. I see it fits pretty well with the layout of God's word. And I hope you've seen that as we've traveled through the text together. We're going to continue that journey. And here in 19 and 20, I think we see some of those facets of telling of the story. Um, in 19, particularly 19, 11 through 21, we're going to see this account of a final battle of the, the rider of the white horse and, and all of that take place. So it's that final battle again. Well, if that final battle is on the day of judgment, then we've already covered that in chapter eight, verse five, chapter 11, verse 19, and chapter 16, verses 17 through 21. So it's not new ground we're covering for that battle. But there it is. We have that telling of the final battle. We also have in chapter 20, the first part of the chapter, we have this uh, declaration of the martyrs being vindicated. And there's a mention of a thousand year reign. We're going to unpack that in a moment. And then in the latter part of 20, and of course, all of 20 will be in our next podcast, we cover the final battle uh, if you will, the final battle part two, or it's not really part two. It's like we cover it again and yet from another perspective. So we see this building of layers here to the account that give us a fuller account. I don't think that's a bad thing. Now, there are a couple of ways that we can see what is happening here in this last period of time, especially as we deal with the the final judgments, if you will, uh, in 19 and 20. One is that we can see this as a literal series of events. That is, you know, the first final battle, we've got the return of Christ, the rider of the white horse. So we've got Jesus's return, and then there's the thousand year reign and kingdom, and then there's the final judgment, that one we find over at the end of 20. That is one way to see that. That is a legitimate way to see that. You are welcome to hold that view. I personally do not share that view with you, but that's okay. This isn't a salvation issue. We can not see it the same. It's cool. I personally see the thousand-year reign as being symbolic of Jesus's present victory. That is, he began that reign with his victory on the cross. And that thousand year reign is, is a complete period of time. And it is the reign and rule of Christ in the lives of all believers. Uh, that's how I see it. And so I'm not tethered by that chronological sequence, return of Jesus, thousand year reign, final battle and judgment. Um, instead, I, I view it more as one event from differing perspectives being related to us. Again, that's how I see it. You do not have to see it the way I see it. The way I see it, salvation isn't dependent on, okay? Your salvation is not dependent on you seeing this passage the same way I see it. We do need to acknowledge this is God's word, and we need to seek to understand it and apply it to our lives. And I think whatever perspective you hold on these passages, we can do that because the point of the passage does not change. And the point of that passage is Jesus will return, and he will return as king, and he will deal with evil, and he will vindicate his followers. That's the point. And if we can agree on that, then the mechanics of how that plays out, we're not in charge of. We just need to trust the one that is. 
and we can have differing views. So I hope that gives us a framework um, for understanding, maybe a framework for tolerating each other <laughs> if we don't hold the same viewpoints. Um, but really, this comes down to knowing the king is returning and believers will be vindicated and evil will be judged, which has kind of been the theme throughout the book of Revelation, hasn't it? Hmm. All right, let's get on to digging into the text because I look forward to doing that. All right, chapter 19 starts out with an interesting phrase, and I've, I've pointed this out before as we've looked at the accounts in the book of Revelation. Often we will see a John hears this going on, and then he sees this other thing going on. Well, we're about to encounter that yet again. In 19, it starts out this way. First part of 19, first verse. says, after this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting. So he's hearing this massive crowd in the heavenly realms and they're shouting something. What are they shouting? Praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has punished the great prostitute who corrupts the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of his servants. And again, their voices rang out, praise the Lord. The smoke from that city ascends forever and ever. When the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down, or then the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and they worshiped God who was sitting on the throne, they cried out, Amen, praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. Then I heard what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or, or the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. Now, that's what John is hearing. And it is tremendous. I mean, it is this uproar. It comes after, um, well, after that song number seven back in verse 18 with the destruction of Babylon. So we've had this account of Babylon, and then we see this this hallelujah, we see this, this praise the Lord is, hallelujah uh, uh, is a transliteration of a Hebrew phrase that means praise the Lord. So um, this translation just renders it as praise the Lord. 
we see these four praises of God and proclaiming his glory and his victory and his provision. And that, that last one of the four is interesting because it uses a a description, a, a motif that we've seen before in the Gospels. And so it links back. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. Who is the Lamb? Jesus. Who is the bride? The redeemed. Oh, we say, well, the church is his bride. But understand, the church is a byproduct of the kingdom. The church is all the redeemed throughout all the ages. That's who makes up the church. Um, in our modern world, we kind of get hung up on the word church, and we we start thinking, oh, that's my church, or that's their church, or that's this denomination, or that denomination, or this kind of church, or that kind of, and we forget the fact that it is all the redeemed. Now, what about this bride that has prepared herself for the groom? She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. I just led a Bible study earlier today, um, devotional study, out of James, and we were talking about faith and deeds, and the reality is our deeds matter. Our deeds don't save us apart from our faith. You aren't saved by your good works. But if you have genuine faith in Christ, if you have that relationship with Christ, it will play itself out in what you do. And if it doesn't affect what you do, then that should really be a warning sign for you that you may not have the faith you think you do. Because it will play itself out. Any claim to faith without works is, as James says, dead. The church, as it is the bride of Christ, is going to be given that white linen, that purest, finest and pure white linen to wear. Why? Because it represents the good deeds of God's people. The deeds have to be there. They follow the grace of God. They don't earn the grace of God, but they are still there. So I encourage you, live as people of Christ if you know him as Savior and Lord, and let that living as people of Christ display itself in good deeds. Be compassionate, be loving, be caring. Proclaim the message of gospel that brings salvation. What greater act of love is there? than to share the message of life and salvation with those that are bound for hell and death. That is compassion. And to do it in a loving way, not a, I want more credit because I led more people to Christ or whatever your thinking is. Keep it the right way for the right reasons. But live for Jesus and understand, we will be clothed with the deeds of God's holy people. Now, that's given us a framework for a wedding feast, a bride and groom, 
let's keep going in this account. Starting in verse 9, we find these words. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he said, these are true words that come from God. Now, we're going to stop right there. Ten's important too, but nine describes it. The angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, we can go back to accounts in, in Mark and Luke and Matthew about the wedding feast of the Lamb and what Jesus had to say about that feast. Um, here we see that picked up again in the book of Revelation over in chapter 19. And it's, it's this beautiful image of the relationship of Jesus to the redeemed and what that's going to look like. And it's a glorious thing. We want to be invited to this feast. Weddings in the first century were a huge deal. They would go on for days. And you may be thinking, yeah, I've been at some weddings that seemed like they went on for days. No, these were parties. These were a celebration. These were a community event that went on for days and were enjoyed. This was a great thing. And you wanted to be part of this. We're going to contrast that with another feast that appears in the latter part of this chapter. And it's an intentional contrast. I mean, the, the text is set up that way to, to contrast these two feasts that are taking place. And everyone will be involved in one of them or the other one. The redeemed get the wedding feast of the Lamb. And it's awesome. Then the angel proclaims to John, says, and he added, these are true words that come from God. Uh, John seems to misunderstand that. He's thinking the angel saying these words come from God. He's going, oh, wait, you're God. You know, um, he says, then I fell down. And it's interesting. John is writing this and John talks about his mistake here. And the correction he received. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said, no, don't worship me. I am a servant of God, just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God. For the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. Now, wow. Verse 10 of Revelation 19, we would all do well to hear the wealth of information that is given to us in that passage as believers. Number one, there is only one object of our worship, should be only one object of our worship, and that is Jesus. Not angels, not, I remember back, I was uh, 80s, 90s, really big in the late 90s, I guess, this whole concept of guardian angels. I mean, Christian bookstores were selling guardian angel garbage. Hey, that alliterates. It's a preacher thing. Um, these guardian angel pins and stuff to remind you of your guardian angel is like, where, where in scripture are we told to focus on the angels? 
I'm waiting for your response. I'm not hearing it. We're told to worship God. Jesus is the object of our worship, not angels. And this angel calls John on the carpet when he gets that mixed up. And he makes it clear. No, don't worship me. I am a servant of God, just like you and your brothers and sisters. Who is he talking about? Well, he's talking about John and the other believers, and he goes on, who testify about their faith in Jesus. Yeah. Don't get hung up on angels, okay? They're other servants of God. But here's an angel saying, hey, I'm just like you guys. It's about proclaiming relationship to Jesus. Who testify about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God. For the essence of prophecy is to give clear witness for Jesus. What is the essence of prophecy? What is prophecy at its core? Prophecy at its core is the proclaiming of Jesus. It is a witness to Christ or for Christ. Um, wow, what a useful verse. What an informative verse. And maybe sometimes what a challenging verse when we get off base as John just did in that moment and got corrected. Now we've hit a turning point. Now we get really into what would be that, that first final battle, if you will, um, or the first telling of that final battle. We get the rider on the white horse. Now this isn't the rider of the pale horse. That's death. Um, from previous accounts, what back in chapter six and so on, this is different. Let's hear what it says. There are a few details I'll pick out along the way just to help us understand and, and maybe see a little clearly. Then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named faithful and true. For he judges fairly, and he wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was Word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest pure linen, sound familiar, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with, a rod, with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written, this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. So, between verses 11 and 16, we find that account. Who is this character on the white horse? I'll go ahead and give you the spoiler now. It's Jesus. 
uh, yeah, there's no question there. This is Jesus. It echoes some of the description given back in the very beginning of the book of Revelation about his appearance, but frames it a little differently. And there's some significance to the way it's framed here. Um, he is faithful and true. He judges fairly and wages a just war. This is Jesus who is bringing grace and judgment. This is Jesus, the groom from the wedding we were just talking about. But this is also Jesus, the judge. His eyes were like flames of fire. Eyes like flames of fire. Yeah, there's an intensity. There's a focus. We've talked previous chapters about that. On his head were many crowns. Remember, the beast had a crown on each of the heads. But here, all the crowns reside on one head. So all the authority is in one place in Jesus. A name written on him that no one understood except himself. In other words, no one's over him. Um, no one would have authority over him, power over him. He wore a robe dipped in blood. Now, that's a significant piece of imagery there. There's a reference in Isaiah to a robe dipped in blood as a sign of victory. You know, your robe is dipped in your enemy's blood or dripping with your enemy's blood because they're the ones that have taken damage. Um, I don't really think that's what's going on here. Because if you pay attention to it, uh, I saw heaven open. This white horse is there. This guy's on it. John is describing this guy. The battle hasn't happened yet. And he's already covered in blood. So whose blood is his robe dipped in? This is Jesus we're talking about. Who shed his blood for the sins of the world. Yeah. We're back to the sacrificed lamb. We're back to the suffering servant. Even in this image of a powerful judge warrior king, he is still the lamb that was slain and now lives. I think it's his blood all over the robes. That's what gives him the, the authority. It is a sign of his victory. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest pure white, finest of pure white linen, follow him on white horses. What's that pure white linen? Well, we just saw from the first part of the chapter. That's the deeds. That is the deeds of the redeemed the good deeds of the redeemed. Um, from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. There again, that two-edged sword that we hear reference to, um, the sword of the Lord, the, the word of the Lord is a two-edged sword, able to sever, you know. What are the two edges of the sword? Well, the sword speaks grace to those that accept Christ, and it speaks judgment to those that don't. And we've seen it speak grace. The, the 
crowd, the, uh, the army, if you will, behind him, arrayed in their fine white linen, are the ones that respond to the message of grace. Now, for all those that have rejected the message of grace, we have the message of judgment. Is it a necessary message? Yes. If God is just as well as merciful, then yeah, there has to be a message of judgment. He will rule them with an iron rod. Yeah, that's a sign of strength. Uh, an iron rod was the strongest thing at that point. Um, so that's a emblematic of power there. Uh, he will release the fierce wrath of God. Or fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. Now we've seen reference to that in previous chapters as well. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of Kings, or King of all kings, and Lord of all lords. So there's no, no subjugation there. Uh, this is proclaiming who he is, and obviously he is Christ, Lord of lords, King of kings, the Redeemer, the victorious Messiah, our Savior and Lord, and the one who judges the world. So that's where we get to at the end of verse 16. And then we see a shift in 17. Uh, we see some aftermath there. Let's look at that. In verse 17, we're introduced to the idea of another feast. We've already had one feast, the wedding feast. You're either invited to the wedding feast, or I said back then you would be invited to either the wedding feast or the other one. This is the other one. This is the one you don't want your invite to. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, come gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, and strong warriors, of horses and their riders, of all humanity, both free and slaves, small and great. In other words, this is going to be a judgment on everybody. It doesn't matter if you're a king, a warrior, or a slave. If you're free or slave, if you're great or small, wealthy, it doesn't matter who you are. There's a feast prepared. Unfortunately, the judged humanity is not going to be those enjoying the feast. They're going to be the feast for the carrion eaters, for the birds of the air that will come and eat the flesh. Verse 19, then I saw the beast. Yeah, that beast. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gather together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. So now the battle takes place. So you've, you've got Christ showing up and his army in white linen behind him. And then you've got this little vignette in the middle where I see this angel standing out there in the sun calling to the, to the buzzards in the sky. 
hey, come on, there's going to be a big feast for you and it's going to be all the kings of the world and it's going to be all of the... And then we get to the, the enemy. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gather together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And, wow, some battle. Um, the battle takes place between verse 19 and 20. Because by the time we start the next verse, it's over. It's kind of like that battle at Armageddon where the enemy is arrayed there, which I understand this is a retelling of that, but where the enemy is arrayed there, they're ready to stand against God and Jesus shows up and it's all over. That's it. It's over. There, there isn't really a battle. Um, there's an overwhelming defeat, but no real battle. Now, I've mentioned before I'm a Texan. Those of you that actually know me know how I feel about Texas. It's a, it's a big deal. Um, the, the battle for Texas independence, the battle of San Jacinto lasted like 18 minutes. It was a decisive battle. And one of the things that made it decisive was the rapid capture of Santa Ana. Um, It becomes decisively finished when you capture the leader of the enemy. And if you can do it fast, then it really uh, ties things up quickly. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world, their armies gather together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And then verse 20, and the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who had worshipped his statue. Both the beast and the false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. Again, that sword, one side of it is grace. The other side is judgment. These are those that had worshiped the beast and his statue. And now they receive the judgment for that. They are cut down by that sharp sword from the mouth of the one riding the white horse and the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. What a lovely thought to end the chapter on, don't you think? The vultures gorged themselves on the dead bodies. So, here we are. And another image of the final battle. It's decisive. It's, it's, it seems almost wrong to call it a battle. We began the chapter talking about one kind of feast, a great celebration that goes on for days, a wedding feast of the Lamb and His Bride, the Redeemed, and the, the celebration and joy that's there. And we contrast that with the feast we find in the latter part of the chapter. The feast for the vultures as they 
gorge themselves on the dead bodies of the defeated army of the beast and the false prophet. Which feast do you want to be a part of? I know which feast I'm a part of already. If you don't know Christ as your Savior and Lord, and what I mean by that is this, if you have not admitted to God that you're a sinner, that you have sinned against Him, done things your own way, rebelled against Him, and asked Him to forgive you, to forgive you in Christ. Because you see, God became flesh and dwelt among us and died on a cross as an innocent sacrifice to atone, to pay for my debt of sin, your debt of sin. Because God, as much as he is merciful, as much as he gives grace, is also just. And there has to be punishment for sin. And that punishment is death. But God in his love for us did everything necessary to save us, to step in and himself pay the price for our sin so we don't have to. That's the core of the message of the gospel. Do you know him as Savior and Lord? Have you turned to God? Have you called on the name of Christ to be saved? Have you admitted to God that you're a sinner, asked for forgiveness in Christ? And receive that forgiveness he says he's faithful to give us that forgiveness if we ask for it if we turn from our sin and turn to him he will save us have you become one of the redeemed if not don't put it off because this is what's coming and i don't say that in some sort of a you know hollywood movie apocalyptic thing the reality is whether it's we're here at the end of days or we are here at the end of our day on this planet in this life we will face eternity will we face it as part of the lamb's wedding feast or will we face it as part of the feast for vultures the decisions we make now about Christ shape eternity. Please don't put it off. Turn to him today. Find salvation, victory, and peace with God. I pray you'll do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity that we find there, that it is either or. That there is no middle ground and there is no both. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to cling to you, that as believers, you would help us to, to truly live lives that, that carry out those good deeds, that, that Father, bring glory to you those things that will become our white linen robes 
at that great feast. Not for our own glory, but that we may bring glory to you. Lord, we thank you for the victory that you have won and have given to us. And Lord, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray.